even developed a new technology of lowering a basket from a moving plane that would sit perfectly still so that the natives could come in and they could exchange gifts. Um, a, a phenomenal new thing. And so they were, cha- they were exchanging gifts. Um, they developed a friendship from the sky, if you will. And, and then they landed. And within a few days, they were speared to death. And, and for all practical purposes, it seemed like a senseless waste tragedy but in an amazing turn of events Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel was the sister of one of the slain missionaries and Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of one of the slain missionaries went back on foot to the tribe and shared the gospel with the very people that killed their family members and so super powerful story and Steve Saint who should be pictured above he was Nate Saint's son. So Nate Saint was one of the missionaries that was speared. And Steve Saint would go with his aunt in the summers from the time he was a little boy. And, and he would spend summers with these natives. And he's pictured there with three of the, the natives that actually killed his father and went on to develop a, a strong relationship with them. Powerful stuff. But Steve, as he befriended them, and there's one story where, where one of the tribesmen said, was, was kind of begrudging Rachel Saint for not teaching Steve basic skills when he was growing up, like making a blowgun. And, and so she said, what are, you, you know, what are you doing? You're not training this boy. And, and she pointed to him with her finger and said, you killed his father. How is he going to learn? <laughs> And, and so there was this relationship. These guys all came to know the Lord. But it turned out, as Steve researched what happened, it turned out that the, the Waodani had no intention of killing the missionaries at all. But there were a number of seemingly random coincidences that all came together. And if they hadn't come together the way they came together, the, the missionaries would never have been killed. And, and so at one point, Steve, as he was listening to their stories, said the following, and I quote, As the killers described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. That's a... That, that's a punch right there. It's an anomaly. As he looked at how all the events led to the death of these missionaries, he said it couldn't have happened but for divine intervention. In other words, God was involved in what was happening. Well, the book of Esther, and we'll come back to that, but the book of Esther, like the events that led to the murder of the five missionaries, highlights a string of seemingly random coincidences that we'll find out as the book unfolds all had to happen as they happened in order for God to be glorified through the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. There are spectacular events and spectacular people in the Bible. For example, when we see the ten plagues against Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, 
or Joshua conquering the, the hordes in Canaan. We, we look at that and we say, that's God. But then when we see King Ahasuerus throwing a big party, getting drunk, and deposing his queen, we think God is absent. But he's not. And that's the main point of the sermon today and, and really the book of Esther and Esther chapter 2. And, and here's the main point. Our unstoppable God works through the good and bad choices of imperfect people to accomplish his plan. Once again, our unstoppable God works through the good and bad choices of imperfect people to accomplish his plan. So we're going to look at the problem, the plan, the people, and the principles. So number one, the problem. Look with me at verse one. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Quick review. In chapter 1, we meet King Ahasuerus. He's the most powerful king on earth of the, of the most vast empire. Um, also goes by Xerxes. And, and he had a queen who was lovely to look at. And that's how she was described. On a whim, he decided to show her off to his buddies when he was drunk at a party. And she refused to come. And it put him in a, this awkward position. He became angry. And, and so what happened? In a fit of drunken, lustful rage, he deposed his queen. Now in chapter 2, just three years later, he's kind of sad. He's, he, he has a change of heart, but he can't get the queen back. What's done is done. It's final. As one commentator said, he's not angry at Vashti anymore but filled with regret. Nonetheless, he's a victim of his own angry and lustful impulses and now bound by an immovable law which left no room for a change of heart. No one wins in a divorce. And he has lost his queen. So the problem, the king is lonely and misses Vashti. The king's servants know him well. They know he's an impulsive carnal man driven by his lusts and so they come up with a plan that he is sure to like and that's point two the plan look with me at verses two to four then the king's young men who attended him said let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the, queen, the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and so he did so. The plan is simple. Gather all the, the, the beautiful women in all 127 provinces of the kingdom and bring them to Susa for the king. Now, now just, just stop. It, it's easy to miss this, but just stop and think about the scope and ramifications of this. This is, this is not a fairy tale. One commentator put it this way. This is not Cinderella's ball where one lucky girl becomes the princess and everyone else gets to go home after the ball. These young ladies were torn from their families 
never to see them again. And, and they were torn from their families to experience one of the following. All of them would be used by a selfish, wicked man for one night. A man with zero regard for human rights. One of them would become the queen of this bipolar man. As you, as you go through Esther, you'll see that. Who was accustomed to using people. And if you, if he, if you didn't please him, you could have your head lopped off in a moment. And they would never have a close relationship with the queen or with the king. It's not like this one person would be lucky enough to have a great relationship with a king and become a queen. She would become queen, sure. But later in the book, we find that Mordecai wanted Esther to go talk to the king. She can't even go talk to him at risk of being killed. And she said, I haven't even seen him for 30 days. What has he been doing for 30 days? He's been having multiple affairs. That was the life they were marrying into. Or the rest of them would be, in a sense, banished to the king's second harem, which is kind of the, between a rock and a hard place, hoping that the king calls you, remembers you and calls you by name. I don't, I don't think so. Or a constant reminder that you weren't good enough, you weren't beautiful enough all in isolation from their family and friends. That's what these women were dragged into. Not a, not a pleasant life. It was an evil empire that didn't just pick on women. It said that 500 young boys every year were castrated and brought into the Persian court to serve as eunuchs. It's a horrible time in history, a horrible event, and yet that was their solution to this problem. The king is lonely and misses Vashti. So the plan, rob a hundred young virgins of their innocence, families, and future husbands to satisfy the king's loneliness. The problem, the plan, and now the people. At this point, Mordecai and Esther enter the story. And so look with me at verses 5 to 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai 
was a man of questionable character. He would become a hero, but at this point in the story, he's not a hero. And what do we know about him? Well, we're only given his Babylonian name. And, and that's kind of strange because when Daniel and his friends were, were introduced, they mentioned both the Babylonian name and their Hebrew name, kind of indicating a, a sense of Jewishness that they had. But Mordecai, his Babylonian, his, his Hebrew name isn't even mentioned. And his Babylonian name is, he's named after a Babylonian god, Marduk. And so we get the sense that Mordecai has kind of drifted from his Jewish faith. And on top of that, his aunt and uncle died and he raised their orphan daughter as his own. And, and her name is Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name. And her Babylonian name is Esther, which was after, named after Ishtar, the god of love and war. And, and you'll see later on that that really kind of fits her. But um, so, so he's raising her. But when the king's edict came to gather these women, there's no, no sense, at least we don't see it in the text, that he might have tried to hide her. That would have been a wise thing to do. This is your daughter. Do you want to send her to that fate? What would you do if you're a dad and you have a daughter? Run for the hills. Hide this girl. Protect her from this. We don't get a sense that there's, there's any of that here. Also, he commanded her to hide the fact that she was Jewish so that she might have, I, I suppose, we're not told why, but, but maybe so that she would have better chances with the king. Um, the Jews were not necessarily an unfavored class then, so it wouldn't have necessarily worked against her. Um, but he told her not to tell anybody that she was a Jew, which, which was really a departure from the faith. Now Esther, oh, and, and, he, and the text shows us that he tells her that twice in verse 10 and verse 20. So he really makes a strong point. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Now Esther, her name um, Hadassah, was also a, a woman of questionable character. Now look with me at verses 12 to 16. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been taken as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, and then it, it goes on. Okay, what do we know about Esther from there? She willingly ate the king's food, which was strictly forbidden. We have examples 
just a generation before her, when, when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were offered the king's food. And, and in, in Daniel chapter 1, it says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So, so Daniel understood, and his buddies, they understood it was strictly forbidden according to their Jewish law. But she abandoned all of that, and she took the food from the king's palace. Number two, in obedience to Mordecai, she hid the fact that she was Jewish. I already mentioned that, and we see that in verses 10 and 20. In short, she took the bull by the horns. She didn't seem to regret her new social standing, but instead seized the opportunity. Now, is that too strong to say about Esther? I, I don't think so. Um, remember Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph was sold into slavery, and then he came into Potiphar's house, and, and the Bible says in Genesis 39, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight. Who gave him that favor? He didn't take it. It was given to him. He found favor in the sight of Potiphar. Well, then remember, Potiphar's wife went after Joseph to have an adulterous affair with him and Joseph refused and he fled and he was thrown into prison and then in prison it says but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor the Lord gave him favor in sight in the sight of the keeper of the prison well then Daniel Daniel 1 9 and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs in Esther, we find something else happening. In, in verse 9, it says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. In verse 15, it says, Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all that saw her. In verse 17, it says, She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. This is, it's, it's a small detail, but it's important. She embraced her new position and sought to become queen of this wicked man. Now, now remember, there's no problem yet. The Jews are not in danger at this point in the story. And, but she commits adultery. Now, she didn't really have a choice, but she, she didn't have to relish in it and pursue it. But she has an adulterous affair and b b broken marriage laws of being unequally yoked and Mordecai was complicit. Now, now, bear with me. I'm not trying to place blame on a victim here. But I am saying that she had drifted from her Jewish roots. Daniel 7 says, you shall not, or Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons. That's Mordecai, taking their daughters for your sons. Or they would turn away your sons from following me so on and so forth. She, she turned away. She denied she was Jewish, ignored food laws, and pursued a marriage with a pagan king. Bottom line, she, contrary to biblical law, under Mordecai's tutelage, took the bull by the horns, beat out at least a thousand other women, and became queen. And Mordecai was right there with her. 
Now, I, I only say that to say not that we shouldn't follow Esther's example or, you know, we should. This isn't about example, but this is about God using unlikely people to do incredible things. So verse, verse 11 and 19, what happened with Mordecai? Well, in verse 11, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was doing. But then by the time we get to 19, after Esther is crowned queen, it says, now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And then later, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So what was the result of Esther becoming queen? Mordecai went from just walking around on the outside to he has a, a strong, solid government position at the king's gate. So that's, these are the things that are coming into place right now. Again, there is no problem at this point with Israel, but, but the pieces are all falling into place. So the problem, the plan, the people, now the principle. Our unstoppable God works through the good and bad choices of imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan. In Luke, we learn, remember Jesus was walking alongside some disciples and, and they were talking about Jesus' recent death. He had just died and now his body wasn't in the, in the tomb and, and they're wondering about it. And Jesus came up alongside them and they didn't recognize him and he listened to them and then he, starting in the law, he began to tell them how the whole Bible was about him. And, and the entire Bible is pointing to Jesus. So how does this point to Jesus? I suggest three ways. Number one, in this passage, we see the incredible contrast between Jesus and the powers of the world. King Ahasuerus, what did it take to have a relationship with him? Well, it took winning this incredible beauty pageant. So the cream of the crop from his entire kingdom were gathered together, but that wasn't enough. They spent 12 months beautifying with perfumes and oils and all of that. And after all of that, they just might, their name might be remembered, but most likely it wouldn't be. And they would be kind of used, abused, and kicked to the curb. That's how this, this world, the powers of this world work. And that's how many of us are tempted to think of God. What do you think you need to do for God to accept you? What do you think you haven't done? Maybe you just don't feel like you've done enough. Maybe you feel like, oh, there's just, there's got to be, there's got to be more. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus takes us in our mess and says, You're mine. And he loves us. No beautifying. We just come to him as we are and we say, I surrender. 
and we are instantly accepted right into the Holy of Holies with Jesus himself, never to be cast aside. So different. Now, is this your view of God? Or do you feel he is standoffish like King Ahasuerus waiting for you to get your act together? Do you know you don't have your act together? I hope you do. If you don't, you haven't lived long enough or you're blind. (laughs) But he accepts us. He loves us. So different from that world. How else does this passage? And, And he proves it by dying on the cross for us. Instead of taking us, our bodies, and using it for his pleasure, he gives his body to bring us life. It's a beautiful thing. Well, in this passage, we also see the absolute sovereignty of God over all events. Now, I praise God, and I know you do too, for those moments in your life, those parting of the Red Sea moments, where you say, that's God. God was here today. Where he worked in a powerful way in your life, and and you praise him for it, and I praise him for it. However, in the book of Esther, there are no spectacular miracles, no shining moments where God took center stage. In fact, he's not even mentioned at all. But his fingerprints are all over the place in the everyday actions of faulty people, of wicked kings and backslidden saints. A bipolar king's drunken party deposing Queen Vashti in a fit of rage, regretting it later, and having a lust-ridden beauty pageant. Esther happening to be beautiful, in the right place at the right time, and ambitious, willing to eat the king's food, and hide her Jewish identity on Mordecai's instruction. Mordecai being elevated to a government position, Mordecai overhearing a plot against the king. That's later in chapter 2. We didn't get to it. But he overhears this plot and then he tells the king. And, and, and it's recorded, but he's not rewarded. Do you know how often that happened in that kingdom? When someone came in great loyalty and, and uncovered a plot to assassinate a king? They were always rewarded. 100% of the time because that was re- if you were a king and you wanted to stay on the throne you better reward loyalty it was always rewarded and yet Mordecai's Mordecai was not rewarded that never happens it seems like a random unfortunate circumstance but it wasn't it was all part of God's incredible plan and all of these elements had to be in place in advance of the problem. There's no problem yet. Nobody's scheming to solve a problem. It hasn't happened yet. You'll discover that later in Esther. God is sovereign, and he is working through the minute details of everyday life. Remember the, the, the five missionaries. After the death of the five missionaries, it seemed, it was just, it saddened the nation. It seemed pointless. 
And yet, news of that event spread worldwide. And what seemed like a senseless turn of events sparked a modern missionary movement that not only converted that entire village, but it converted hundreds of thousands of people even on into the millions because some missionaries gave their life. Those random events led to something amazing. And that's what we see in Esther. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Do you know that this morning? What is going on in your life that you that just so discourages you and leaves you almost feeling hopeless, maybe even ready to throw the towel in? What is that event? It just seems like, man, I know God is here, but He's not there. God is right in the middle. And you might not know what the purpose of it yet, but God will use that powerfully to build the story that he's building. And it's a glorious one. Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Does that mean if I flip a coin, it's not random chance? You mean God has his fingers in that? Yes. Proverbs, or Matthew 29, or 10.29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father's will. Do you know how many various reasons a sparrow dies? And yet God is there in the details. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he will. Now, God isn't responsible for sin. He doesn't do it. Willing people do it. King Ahasuerus gladly committed those sins. But he was not taking God by surprise. God had a plan, and he was going to use all of that to bring about this beautiful plan that God had. And we'll see that later. Acts 17 says that God has determined pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Do you know that God has determined where you would live and how long you would live? Just think of the billions of decisions that have taken place since the beginning of time. Socioeconomic problems, huge shifts, job changes, persecution that forced people to get on a boat and go to a different country. Do you know that God has been working through all of that so that you would be where you are right now? And the next words are, so that they would seek after God and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Our God is a powerful, sovereign God who is working amazingly in everything. So, this passage tells us about this incredible contrast between Jesus and the powers of this world like King Ahasuerus. It also shows us the absolute sovereignty of God over all events. And I think lastly, it provides encouragement for those who have blown it. 
Have you blown it? Have you ever made mistakes? Mistakes that you wish you could undo, but you can't. You can't ever undo them. They're fixed. And you might think, I'm damaged goods, or, or, or what hope have I now? The, the, the course is set. There's nothing I can do. Have you ever made a mistake that ran so deep you can't unwind it? No amount of sorrow or regret can undo your predicament. Remember Joseph's brothers? They sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him, and on a whim, they decided to get some money instead. And they sold him into slavery, knowing that he would be mistreated, and they gladly did it. They got their money. Well, then later, years later, they were begging for food. And they go down, and they find out that Joseph is the one that is going to give them life or give them death. And, and at the end of their life, they were terrified, and they went up to Joseph, and they were afraid, and they thought, oh my gosh, he's going to kill us. And, and Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even their evil actions God used to bring about a great salvation. That's really what we see in Esther. And I love what one commentator said. And hear this. This is really important because you can take this the wrong way and think, okay, well then let's sin that grace may abound. But one commentator said this, the truth here is not meant to confirm us in our sin or comfort us in our sin, but to console the heavy-hearted, the one who has blown it, to remind us that God is indeed still at work, even using us in our failures, to give us confidence as God's people that His purposes cannot be thwarted, even in the face of our own failures. Isn't that good news? And his purposes are good. It's not, it's not like he has these horrible purposes and, well, at least he's going to get his way. His purposes involve our blessing as we enjoy him. Our unstoppable God works through the good and bad choices of imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for Esther and Mordecai. Lord, thank you that, that though it, it seems they really didn't know you, but God, you work and you're not done with them and you're working in such a way to bring about such a glorious end. Lord, I thank you that you are involved, not just in those big, wonderful moments, but, but especially when we're struggling and things just seem hard and you seem absent. Lord, you're there. Give us faith to see your fingerprints. Give us encouragement to know, to press on and to watch and see the salvation that you inevitably bring to those who turn to you and trust you. Lord, give us the faith to trust you, especially in our trials. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.